Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Adrian Tchaikovsky, author of Cage of Souls, which was published by Head of Zeus. 2019, and it's also on the shortlist for uh, this year's Clark Award. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for ha- having me on. So first, um, so I see you've, you've written quite a bit, um, <laughs> considering all the various ideas you have, you know, in your head, how did this particular one manage to rise up above the rest and get written? Um... I mean, Cage of Souls is a bit of an interesting one because it's the original incarnation of this was actually written before I had anything published. Oh. So it's actually something I've gone back to uh, after all. It's, I mean, it's um, I always loved as a reader the kind of the dying earth sort of subgenre of books. So uh, Jack Vance, Gene Wolfe, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is very explicitly my own shot at. Um, something in that general setting so obviously it's far future the the sun is dying civilization is is in decline um it doesn't really have it's a it's a bit grimmer than vance generally got it doesn't really have that kind of whimsy but it's <laughs> it's definitely my my attempt to kind of build that enormous stack of mostly invisible history that those those books tend to be um tend to be structured around mm-hmm. so since we are on what that the book is actually about can you tell me a little more about the uh, protagonist and the setting and the conflict yes so um it's a first person in in a very kind of i guess a wolfian sort of style it's a first person narration by a narrator who is not necessarily terribly reliable as he's kind of a terrible person in a variety of ways mm-hmm. uh stefan advani is a scholar and we first meet him on a prison boat being consigned for some sort of political uh, dissidents to a place called the island, which is often the uh, phenomenally inhospitable and monster ridden jungles. Um, the story kind of it alternates sections in the prison with alternate with sections of Stefan remembering the city he came from and various other escapades he's had uh, before getting consigned there. Mm-hmm. He comes from the city of Shadrapar. Shadrapar is the last city that he is aware of that people live in. It's very insular. It's phenomenally self-involved, mm-hmm. and it's very obviously coming apart. And from his vantage point in the prison, he gets to see kind of thing, all sorts of signs of the city he came from mm-hmm. failing. And it kind of goes downhill from there because obviously the island he's on, the prison colony, is very dependent on the city for everything. And so as the city fails, so does the prison and things get, the screw gets tightened more and more. Mm-hmm. And eventually kind of everything explodes. And this is, this is also compounded the, the world he's in, um, the jungles especially that the, the island is situated in, are kind of hostile evolution run riot and there are a variety of potential explanations advanced for this inside the text none of which are necessarily true but hmm. which basically means i get to write lots and lots of monsters which <laughs> I like doing. pretty cool um so does it have since it's set in the future does it have any anything to do with space is there you know did did people were 
and I don't want any spoil, you know, I don't want to spoil any hmm. part of the book, but, um, you have anything? There's else? certainly no, there's no, the society that Stefan comes from, which is kind of a weird mixture of futuristic and, um, retrograde mm-hmm. doesn't have any space technology. And there's a suggest one of the characters in the book is interested in space. And there's a suggestion from him that people went into space and basically found nothing. Hmm. And the, the yearning to go into space has kind of died out because it is, because there was nothing there. We never met anyone there. It was all basically just wasteland and vacuum. And so people have retreated into themselves. And you can see, so, as, as, as I say, the, the, the Shadrapan society doesn't really care about anything other than its own little whims and, and peccadilloes, basically. It's phenomenally concerned with completely trivial matters, even in the face of its own extinction. That kind of sounds like a modern day novel, but uh... yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, it's it, it's weird. They, it's one. Of, it's a rather bittersweet thing about being a science fiction writer that every swap and you come up with something which was all fun and games at the time, and then by the time by the time it actually hits the shelves, it's become rather more resonant than you necessarily um, anticipated or intended. Mm-hmm. How much? Uh, well, well, did you do any research for this book? Um, I don't think you can really for this. I mean, it's in that sense, it, 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 the writing of it was more like a writing a fantasy book than writing a science fiction book because the, the only real key thing is that it remains consistent to itself. Mm-hmm. It's set in a future unimaginably far away. There, there, there are, it's explicitly stated that civilizations have kind of come and gone and risen and fallen mm-hmm. between now and then. Um, there are some shreds of our culture that turn up in the book mm-hmm. and one particular character i won't say anything more of um because that would be a spoiler but in general the world that stefan inhabits is is so far removed from ours that there's nothing really i could have researched mm-hmm. you know, actually so what what you just said makes me think about you know this whole thing about uh the split between science and fantasy and it makes mm. me wonder so i i, I would expect that your book doesn't the things you put in it don't seem like fantasy and yet the science will make it seem in a sense fantasy. So I'm just curious how, you you know, in a reader's mind, how you, um, what elements would you need to kind of keep it more science than fantasy? You know, um, I, it's, uh, I mean, there's definitely a fuzzy border between the two mm-hmm. when you get down to it. And, and these dying earth sort of style novels tend to be, situated close to that border i mean wolf is more science than vance mm. to take those those two but even there there's a lot going on that because the the key thing i think tends to be that because the characters do are not scientifically literate most of the time because knowledge of you know deep in-depth knowledge of the sciences has generally been lost or is restricted to a very few mm. it all looks like magic to them and therefore the reader seeing it through their eyes can make their own call a lot of the time as to whether what is going on is mystical mm-hmm. or is just literally sufficiently advanced science in the old, um, as the old adage goes. Um, for me as a writer, I find it's important for me to know that it's science and not magic. Mm-hmm. And there, I mean, there are little, hopefully, and hopefully through that, basically, there are enough little nods to the fact that what's going on even and, and in this case stefan isn't superstition he does believe it's science he just, just to him a lot of the science is effectively magic he just accepts it because 
he comes from a culture where you don't tend to question these things. You know, you have a thing that's from ages ago and it works and then eventually it doesn't work and no one can fix it. Mm-hmm. Do you, and I'm, I'm sorry, I feel like I've gone on a bit of a tangent, but, but somehow my mind is grabbed onto this. But so when you write the book, do you feel like you're having a dialogue with someone who's more interested in sci-fi or with fantasy or does it even matter? Um, I sus- I mean, whilst I'm sure there are kind of end crescents of that Venn diagram that don't intersect, I suspect that the majority of people who read sci-fi would also read fantasy, even if they have a preference for one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those books. I mean, I think there are these days there are quite a lot of books where there is a big overlap, and which with books like, uh, say, the fifth season, where I think there's plenty to interest both a diehard fantasy reader and a um, diehard sci-fi writer. That's um, N.K. Jemison, of course. Um, and hopefully Shade of Souls fill, falls into that same line, because it's, again, as a bit of that um, Dying Earth tradition, it's, it is a sci-fi book, and you can see that the bones of what's going on below the surface are sciencey bones rather than, say, mystical bones. But at the same time, a lot of the... The structure of it is more like a fantasy story, mm. or at least it's it. It's almost that the characters are trying to be char- fantasy characters, but the world doesn't necessarily cooperate with their ambitions. Mm. It's possible because there's one character uh, that Stefan meets very early on, Peter Drachma, who is kind of very much set up to be the big sort of Aragorn style fantasy hero, except the world doesn't really work in that way. And therefore his, his attempts to be that sort of returning avenging hero are never going to be particularly fulfilled in the way that a fantasy narrative traditionally might. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Adrian Tchaikovsky, author of cage of souls. You can find more information about his work on Twitter at apt shadow. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. Now, I, I think I read in your bio that you've written, that you've worked in many different, in, in different genres. Yeah. Um, yeah so- I started off as a fantasy author and was, I mean, I got out a, God help me, a 10 book fantasy series um, as, as my very first sort of published offerings. And then um, only with Children of Time uh, in, I think it was 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Was did that then? Did I then become a science fiction author? And weirdly enough, that's then what's sort of taken off, and I'm now better known as a sci-fi than a fantasy author. But I keep, I keep although I'm I'm unlikely to move outside the kind of the joint net of those two combined genres. I do try and move around within them mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always I'm, I, I, I try not to repeat myself too much. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned some of the books that sort of this have inspired this or maybe you know it's in the tradition of yeah. but um what what other either books movies or shows tend to inspire your your creativity maybe i mean in all honesty everything i come across fact fiction uh whatever all goes into the melting pot um 
I mean, I th- and, I, and I think that's the way that most authors would work. I mean, I think if, if you've got to the point where there is, you're being very, very specifically inspired by one thing, then it's going to be very hard to avoid being dragged into the kind of the the gravitic pull of it to the extent where it becomes overly derivative. Mm. Um, but I mean, I I read a lot. Mm. I watch I watch some television. I don't get a huge amount of viewing time, to be honest. Um, but mm. I am always, there's a lot of very good intelligent sci-fi and fantasy stuff out there mm-hmm. on the screen at the moment, which I, which I try and keep up with as best I can. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of really, really good, um, fiction being, being put out. And again, I, I do my best to, um, to keep on top of it. There's, I mean, I, I, I read the rest of the, um, the Clark shortlist, um, a while back, mm-hmm. for example. And it's one of the delights of awards like this, because I mean, I, I read the I read the shortlist each year each year anyway, and it's it the these shortlists do introduce you to books you'd probably never have come across before, uh, which are an absolute delight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to keep up with. It's um it's fairly overwhelming, <laughs> um, but I guess that's a good thing. There's a lot to choose from. Ab- absolutely, yeah. Since you have become a science fiction writer, um, are there is there anything particular in science that you per- um that you're really drawn to some, uh, some field of science. Yeah. I mean, I am my, I mean, my own scientific background is in the biological sciences and behavioral sciences. And that's very much where my writing tends to go. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's also is where I can write with the, with the, the best shot at actual authenticity. So evolutionary science, mm-hmm. um, and most I mean, speculative evolution in particular is very much so, um, Children of Time and Children of Ruin, and my recent Doors of Eden, which is out in the States, I think, later this month, mm-hmm. are all about speculative evolution and um, the evolution of intelligence in different kinds of creature, which is fascinating to me because, I mean, it's one of those things we only have the one example of, well, I suppose that's not true, we only have the one example of um, a civilization to look at um mm-hmm. but when you start looking at animal behavior even the behavior of very um what should be very simple animals if we find out that at least seemingly intelligent behavior can arise in a, an enormous variety of different uh different species mm-hmm. where do you fall in the nature versus nurture debate i mean if we're talking about human behavior i i tend to fall more nurture than nature Although weirdly, of course, the fact that we are so able to be nurtured is part of our nature because we've grown up as um, a highly cerebral social species. So a lot of our um, evolutionary kit is giving us um, a toolkit rather than building us things from the start. Mm -hmm. How about what's your take on artificial intelligence? Oh, I mean, I... (sighs) Or artificial life is really where I'm getting at. Yeah, whoa, well, well, that's, that's. I mean, artificial intelligence in the sense of a computer is tricky because certainly, I mean, I, I've done, I have researched it and so God knows I've used um, AIs. I mean, I, I had a particularly um, <laughs> sharp-aced AI in, in, um, last, in the, God, last year or this year, I think last year's uh, Firewalkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, but, and even then I had to really wrestle to work out a path whereby you'd get one because that's again it was a reasonably hard sci-fi book mm-hmm. uh, and so i was trying to be reasonably plausible with what i was presenting 
Um, I'm not sure that an actual AI in the sense that most people would think of it is necessarily possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I I do feel that if it is possible, we'll probably see it in the next few decades, the way people are working on it. But Mm. what we do have a lot of is um, effectively limited expert systems, which are arguably good at doing certain things but aren't but have no real sense of being sentient beyond those tasks like um siri or something like that mm-hmm. and there's a there's a phenomenal book by uh jeanette shea called you look like a thing and i love you about the limitations of these kind of um neural net learning systems and things like that mm-hmm. which which i would heartily recommend to anyone who's interested in um interest in interest in um learning about this sort of thing mm-hmm. um as far as artificial life i mean we've i've i think we've probably potentially got there already at the material stage because people have kind of built life out of other bits of life mm-hmm. already and we're already yeah we, we've got to the point where we're taking genes out of animals and putting them in other animals um in a functioning way mm-hmm. and I, I guess the point is well, where do you draw the line at what point do you say well no this is still an existing living thing that you've just tinkered with mm-hmm. on what point have you made something entirely novel and I, th- I suspect that like the sci-fi and fantasy there probably isn't a hard line at that point mm-hmm. do you ever feel like because uh, i imagine writing takes a fair amount of your time are you able to do any sort of science or do you do you miss doing science or anything um well I've ne- i never did i studied it but I, I never actually went into it in a professional sense ah. Um, I frankly used to read more science literature than I do now. And again, it's, it, it's a time thing. And also the, um, they had a really nice set of science blogs on the national geographic site, which I think goal got shut down when the thing changed ownership. And that was a bit of a blow, frankly, because that was, there was, um, you had writers like Ed Yong and so forth who were really presenting some very nice, concise and well communicated science there. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are other places I could go, but when I kind of fell out of the habit of that site. And then, you know, habit, habits are what kind of mm-hmm. keep you going, really, with that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. now I, t- I mean, I'm currently researching for the third children of book, for mm-hmm. example. So I've got, I'm specifically, I've got hold of a couple of specific books and I'm reading up on a particular topic because I want to understand it more before I start planning. Mm-hmm. Have you been in a situation where the science doesn't help the plot and you've purposefully just kind of ignored? Uh, I've been in a situation where the science didn't help the plot, so I had to change the plot to fit what science is capable of. Because at the end, I, when, I'm, when I feel I am writing hard science fiction, I feel very conscientious about it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there is a thing, the idea that you're, you're kind of, you're allowed one big lie. <laughs> Um, which I think is actually a pretty solid maxim for writing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so in Children of Time, for example, the big lie was the nanovirus that sped up evolution mm-hmm. because I needed to crunch down the time frame, even though the book still takes place over sort of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that meant, I think the corollary to the big lie is you've got to make everything else as true as possible. Mm-hmm. And so the actual sort of spider evolution itself um the physiological and the behavioral and so forth i i really worked very hard on to make as plausible and reasonable as possible even though it's a a kind of an utterly bizarre idea to try and claim as true um and so i mean for example the one of the other things in in children of time you have a human ship traveling 
to a planet that was terraformed and is now eminent to the humans um, where a civilization of spiders has arisen. And you kind of get the whole thing, you get to see the spider civilization arise in stages in the same, at the same, over the same time period that the human ship is traveling mm -hmm. in stages. And they kind of intersect at various points and then clash at the end. Um, originally, the ship was going to be traveling very close to light speed, which meant that the time differential would allow a single crew of humans to just live through it um, and it not take too long. Mm -hmm. And I worked out that the amount of energy required to get a ship up to that speed was not reasonable given the sort of human civilization I needed them to be. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up saying, well, fine, in that case, they're just going in and out of um, sort of cryogenic suspension. Yeah. And in fact, I think then that, that added immeasurably to the, um, to the book. And a lot of the actual human plot of the book comes out of that very system. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's get back to this book. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say if this book had a soundtrack, um, <laughs> what do you think it would be? What, what sort of aesthetic does the book have? Um, oh, God, you know what? Weirdly enough, I can actually remember the main piece of music that I was listening to when I wrote it originally, year, the very first draft of it years and years ago, mm. which was um, the soundtrack to the film The Thin Red Line. And I think it was just the, the because of the idea, you know, there the whole, there's a track there called Journey to the Line, and it's the idea of you know, you're going on this journey deep into this jungle in a very kind of Joseph Conrad sort of way. Mm -hmm. And that, that will, I think will always be the soundtrack to the book for me. I think it's Hans, I think it's an early Hans Zimmer score, actually. Um, I, I, I mean, I do tend to listen to music while I write, and that's obviously going to color my answer to that question. Hmm. Yeah. So I do get the sense the book is very, uh, so you have, I think you mentioned heart of darkness and the whole, you know, obviously you said there's, yeah. you know, the jungle atmosphere, I guess, because the earth is probably heated up and, you know, it's quite moist or, um, well, I mean, like most likely the earth is heated up and cooled down and heated up and cooled yeah. down a few times between now and then. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not, so the earth isn't covered by jungle. It's, it's just this. No, I mean, they, so the Shadrafar, the city, the, there are basically deserts on one side of it and then a phenomenally inhospitable sea. And then there is the other side where the river comes from, at least to that sea, there is the jungle mm -hmm. and that both the, the deserts and the jungle have kind of been expanding in living memory. Mm -hmm. So the the city is more and more besieged by nature, basically, and there's a big kind of man versus nature uh, theme in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, another thing about this book. What you're describing that seems um, apropos to to current times is that uh, I don't know if you've seen reports that you know with people uh, basically huddled inside more and and not out in open space as much, you know, you, you have animals seem freer, like you see animals moving about more and nature just seems to be taking a little bit more of a hold of the earth again, you know, for limited. Well, know. yeah. I mean, obviously there's a reason for that. And as soon as there's a reliable vaccine, nature isn't going to know what hit it, unfortunately. Yes. Yes. But, it just makes me think about the idea, you know, in your book with the, you know, humanity contracted as it has, you know, nature basically taking back over. Yeah, I mean, I mean certainly um, Stefan has a really hard job adjusting to life on the island because he comes from a culture where 
you just you, know, you nature is excluded as much as possible mm -hmm. and obviously out on the island you're right in the middle of it and you're having to eat things that were palpably alive not too long before and all that sort of thing and it's and obviously you know part of the point of that is really to show how much further stefan's own, own society has gone than ours in that general direction but it is a, a direction we can kind of have been going mm -hmm. how has your approach to writing changed over time um i mean i don't know if my approach to it has to be honest i mean even bef long before i was published i i was very um methodical as a writer I, 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 I would always write every day um at least a little i would just kind of always push things forwards i'd always be phenomenally resistant to edits which i'm fortunately still am <laughs> i think what hopefully what's mostly changed is that my my actual ability to write has improved and refined as you know the more you do it the better you get mm -hmm. effectively because just yeah because i'm not I am trying not to get stuck in a rut with the sort of things that I write, and this is even having yeah, written a 10 book fantasy series. Mm. Hopefully that's going to continue in my own, I will continue to kind of add tools to my own personal toolkit as I go on. Mm -hmm. Would you say there's anything out of the ordinary that you do as a writer to complete your work? I'm definitely a planner. Mm -hmm. And if I can get my planning right, I can generally end up with a first draft that is very, very close to what I will eventually submit. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's, on, I mean, I am somewhat notorious for my output, frankly. <laughs> uh, but I don't think I write more kind of words per day or anything like that than most writers. I think it's simply that I try and make sure that that first draft is as ready as possible rather than having to go back and sort of tinker with anything major mm -hmm. and that i think that enables me to to get as much done as i do mm -hmm. just because i'm not i'm not tinkering on the same project as much as necessarily i might be mm -hmm. so you mentioned your studies that you did your science studies did, have you done any um any work that's uh non-writing work that's influenced how or what you write um yeah i mean i was a lawyer for years oh. and a lot i mean it's certainly in cage of souls and there's a number of other books there is a i have a certain delight of working the really working the banal and the mundane into the fantastical hmm. so there's a lot of things a lot of things that stefan society is interested in which are best to say which are really there are a lot of details that he is very into which are weirdly petty mm. and minor like when he's talking about the way the city is governed and ways uh, th things like that when he finally gets to actually to telling you about shadrapar and his own background mm. and the fact that the city runs on a kind of constant role of debt because there's basically everyone owes everyone else and everyone is constantly trying to collect from everyone else and the entire city kind of views this as a bit of a uh almost like a spectator sport watching watching debtors evade their creditors or get run down hmm. um and you can absolutely bet that comes out of my experience in law because <laughs> i did a lot of debt collection <laughs> oh oh like over the, over the years hmm. so yeah, that uh, that sounds like a pretty fascinating concept. I like that a lot. Um, have you worked 
not necessarily this concept that you just described, but um, sort of uh, legality or the legal construct of a society into your other writings? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, in the, in the, um, the Space Opera trilogy, I'm currently working on one of the characters is basically a space lawyer who mm-hmm. does space law. And there's, there's um, I have um, in the book I'm just editing at the moment, there is a one scene which revolves entirely around a very minor shipping dispute, which basically ends up with someone getting knifed. So yes, I mean it's 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 weird. I mean I I suspect I'm indulging myself as much as anything. But you know if if you if you look at the actual world, there's more effort, uh, sort of blood, sweat, and tears spent on minor commercial disputes than there is on kind of um, sort of exciting spy stuff or other things that are more normal book fodder. So if you've got your fantastical or futuristic society is going to have those things mm-hmm. you know people need ways of dealing with these problems the law and accountancy and all these things exist for a reason even if they're not terribly dynamic and you can have fun making them dynamic mm-hmm. actually I, I happen to be reading a history of um of the war of the roses and it's kind of amazing how much in a world with so much violence there's also a lot of legal issues and a lot of finance and and debt and you know how to pay pay off your debts and all that sort of thing, um, almost to the point like you you know it's more time spent with law and finance than actually going out and fighting. Well, you know you got to pay your soldiers somehow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when uh, so with this particular with this book with Cage of Souls, um, mm-hmm. did you did you maybe overwrite it and have to cut back on? Um, Yes, the original the original draft was very long. I mean, it's not a short book now, but the original mm-hmm. draft was probably about twenty percent mm-hmm. again, which is ridiculously unpublishably long. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I went back to it, I, I as well as cutting a lot, I because my own, you know, because I was, a, I mean, frankly, because I'm, I'm hopefully a bit more of a, a worldly wise and mat- and mature person, a number of bits got altered and amended to to reflect my a uh, bit of a broadened perspective that I didn't have when I originally wrote it. Hmm. Um, there are a couple of characters who get treated quite differently in the, in the final version than they did in the um, in the original. I think the book is it's, is a lot better than, better for that. Hmm. And also, I think coming back to it at a remove, I was better able to appreciate the the character flaws of the narrator, because I don't, I don't do first person narratives often, or at least I tend to only do them in, um, at novella length at most. Mm. And so this, I think this is the, I think this is the only first person novel I've ever written. Mm. And that means you're spending a lot of time in one person's head and it can get very easy to just nod along to everything that person is saying as the writer and give them a bit of a pass and coming back to it, I thought, well, I've probably got to, shake up Stefan's worldview and force him to recount times when he was called out a bit more. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, uh, it's not necessarily clear to the reader that a lot of what he says is rather self-serving. So but There's one scene in particular towards the end which which went in because I basically felt that Stefan had been given too much of a pass and needed a bit of a slap. I was going to ask, do, do, you, do you like him as a character? Or were there times when you were just Obviously, you're the author, but you know, do you feel like at times the character kind of pulled you in ways that annoyed you or frustrated you? Um, yeah, absolutely. But then again, I think 
that's what keeps the narrative fresh really mm -hmm. there is in, if you have that tension between the especially in a first person narrative you have a tension between the narrator and the author mm -hmm. where the, the 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 author is effectively trying to sneak things to the reader behind the narrator's back i mean this i mean again this is very very gene wolf gene wolf is the, one of the great masters of this mm -hmm. and i don't in any way do it as well as he does because i don't think anyone does but that was certainly something that I'd very much taken to heart reading Wolf and was tr was trying to put in at least a little. Just the idea that there are things that are said in the book that Stefan doesn't effectively realise are being said. They're being said by the author to the reader, despite uh, the best efforts of the narrator, almost. <laughs> yeah. I'm speaking with Adrian Tchaikovsky, author of Cage of Souls. You can find more information about his work on Twitter at aptshadow. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. Was was the book fun to write, or was it frustrating? Or what, what's the ratio between f fun and frustrating? Um, very for me, very little is frustrating to write. Writing is always fun. The editing is, is it can be an absolute chore. And mm -hmm. I, I know writers who are much happier with editing, and I I, I envy them that enormously. Mm. Um, but I don't. There have been very few occasions um, when writing has actually been has been actively frustrating. I mean, there were a couple of times when I was writing um, the bear and the serpent, I completely crashed on the plot because I hadn't planned it out properly, mm -hmm. and that was frustrating because I had to go back and rewrite large chunks of it, mm -hmm. um, and I. I had to work, basically, effectively, I had to sit down and think, well, actually, what is the book about? Because if I do what I was originally planning to do at the end, mm -hmm. it basically means that 90% of, of what goes on in the book doesn't mean anything because it's completely undone by a twist ending. And, you know, twist endings are all very well, but some of them you've got to think, well, actually, no, <laughs> there can be, twist endings can be phenomenally annoying yeah. <laughs> um, and on screen or on page mm -hmm. because you kind of think, well, what was the point of all of that if it's just suddenly revealed to be this? Right. Well, I asked uh, that particular question because you you were describing that you know this is you said this is your first attempt at or or your first writing in first person, and yeah. um, and and that's why I wonder if it was frost. You know, having G Gene Wolfe is sort of an example. Or is it an <laughs> well, example? I, mean, I, on, on, I started off knowing I wasn't ever going to produce a Gene Wolfe book. Um, which is probably us as well, because if, I, if, if, if I'd been trying to do that, it would have been a dismal failure. But um, it was, I think that was that second pass when I came back to it and actually got it to the point where I could genuinely submit it mm. was, was the important one, really. Because I think when I originally wrote it, it I wasn't, I think, self-aware enough mm. to really get the uh, the nuances of a first person narrative and it was coming back to it that second time and meeting Stefan again as more of a stranger really let me polish the book up to the point where it was um, submittable 
Was there any point where you thought you wanted to go to third person with the book or were you pretty committed to first person? Um, no, I mean, I think it's, I, I, I think I'm not entirely sure I would have had the, um, the endurance to go through and try and change it all. But also it, it is very much a first person book. It is very much Stefan telling. So that I don't think there was any, ever an option to, um, to make it any other kind of book. Mm-hmm. And I think if it had, been just a um a standard third person narrative as i sort of had written up till then mm-hmm. i think it wouldn't have been as interesting i think it, it's the subjectivity of what's going on because i mean one of the one of the one of the main things the book is about is basically it's about stefan not being there mm-hmm. there's a whole series of events that stefan only ever hears about um most of the big events kind of from the global on the global scale happen with the, when he's not there and they, and the fact that he's not there is why he survives them a lot of the time hmm. and so it is all about things being reported and therefore it's more fitting that the whole book is actually someone's reporting of things being reported it's that and it kind of fits the weird um detached society he comes from that that's how it's being how it's being told the the, the whole of Shadrapar is not is not a vital society in any way. It's a society that's kind of consumed with a kind of decaying ennui. Mm-hmm. Do you expect to do first per, use first person again in the future? I I have found it very useful in um, at, at the novella length. Mm-hmm. I think because novellas are, are tend to be quite intimate and very focused. Mm-hmm. They suit a first-person narrative very well. So, I mean, Ironclads is first-person, and Walking to Elderon is first-person. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, weirdly, I mean, I've just submitted my first-ever second-person narrative, and that was an interesting one mm. yeah. to try. Because it's not done often. It's certainly not something that I'd, I'd done on, on, in any form, but I've just I've just kicked off a novella to Rebellion and on using that, and we'll see what they think. Mm. Interesting. So, a bit of a whimsical question here. Uh, when you were younger, was there any power technology or fictional setting that you yearned for or wanted? I mean, as far as powers go, uh, changing shape, hmm. changing into animals. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, it's a bit of a cheat because it kind of gives you access to all sorts of other powers <laughs> by doing that. But, yeah. I mean, as anyone who's read any of my stuff will know, I'm very my writing is very much rooted in the natural world and our relationship to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, cage of cage of souls in one way. And then you've got the shape changers of the tiger and the wolf series and the insect kingdom of the shadows of the app and so forth. But it's all kind of comes down to that. Mm-hmm. And certainly the ability to partake of the natural world by transformation is something that's always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. I, I, so I, I'm not trying to ask a political question here, but do, does any of your writing um, have sort of a, a, a nostalgia or um, a wor- uh, how should I put it, for the environment, just watching the environment as it's being destroyed now? Uh, it's sometimes, I sometimes feel that I'm writing a requiem for it. Um, mm. I mean, I'm not the only writer in that position. I mean, if you read uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach books, mm-hmm in amongst the cosmic horror, mm-hmm. there is an absolute love song for the natural world and specific landscapes that he is very familiar with. And um, it's really, I mean, write, writing Children of Ruin, where they're terraforming planets and kind of installing ecosystems, mm-hmm. 
I'm writing all that with the knowledge that in the future that they come from, those ecosystems and animals don't exist on Earth anymore mm. because we we wrecked it. And so, and obviously, I then got. I mean, the the bitterest one really is um, Firewalkers, which is um, a sort of a climate collapse novella, which is set in kind of the desert belt around the equator of the world, mm-hmm. where there is basically nothing. There is uh, people only exist because they need the place there for a space anchor, a space elevator. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, and so there is a very very artificial and energy intensive human society that the characters come from but beyond that is just completely dead desert mm-hmm. and the life that is potentially coming out of that desert is can only be the artificial life because normal biological life as of old on earth can't live there in any meaningful way it's pretty fast i'm sure you've seen this the reports that um, again with the current situation with covid that pollution in, in many major cities has gone down you know, and people... Yeah, so it's not going down enough, though. Right. I mean, this is the problem. Even with the reduced activity, which you know, which activity is now building up again, right? Um, the actual amounts, the actual sort of benefits reaped from that are, I think, less than a quarter of what you'd need. Hmm. Yeah. But I think it gives people... I think one thing it does, though, is give people a, a more solid foundation in which to argue, you know, knowing that human beings have the power it's a bit of a proof of concept i suppose in that sense to show that actually yes we can change things Mm -hmm. but i i mean i'm very pessimistic unfortunately i don't see i see that short-term commercial gains are going to outweigh long-term survival of the planet gains up until the point where the planet won't survive no matter what we do yeah um i hope it's not the case i hope i'm wrong Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the data, I think the data, is, the data looks bad. Well, you kind of hope that at some point there will be this great wake-up moment where people suddenly realize, oh, actually, we've got to do this thing and we've got to change things. But unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, I don't think that's going to happen uh, until it's nece- until it's too late. At that point, there will be a colossal amount of human suffering before mm-hmm. you know humans are diminished enough that the world can recover a bit, but. There will also be a colossal amount of ecological suffering, and many millions of species will go extinct before we are effectively forced to confront what we're doing. Yeah, it does seem that way. And, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. So, I guess we'll go back to the book. Um, <laughs> uh, did you have any? So, you mentioned some of what it took to finish it. Did you have any other difficulties getting it uh, finished or published? Uh, no, I mean, it was, um, I mean, honestly, by the, my personal, um, sort of my career had enough momentum at that point that getting it published wasn't a, wasn't a, a problem. I mean, I, I had already, um, so it was published from Head of Zeus, as you say, they'd previously published, uh, Dogs of War, mm-hmm. which is still one of my own favorite, my favorite of my own work. Um, it, um, Dogs of War had done decently well so they were more than happy to take another sci-fi from me and i think they're obviously the fact that it's been nominated for the the clocks has absolutely delighted me um so i think the main difficulty because i am an inherently lazy person 
<laughs> the main difficulty was basically making myself sit down and think, well, you do actually have to rewrite this, because in the state, it wasn't at its first draft, because it was written um, sort of two books back from um, my very first published book, Empire in Black and Gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in no sense good enough to be published. Um, but the temptation to say, well, it's there now, and can I not just submit it, um, is very strong. And so it's sitting, it was sitting down with myself and saying, no, you're going to have to go through this and put in a huge amount of work, more potentially than writing in the first place, mm. if you want to salvage it to the point where it's actually fit to put in front of people. Mm-hmm. And through all that pain came this, uh, came this reward. Hmm. Yes, I mean, I'm very, I'm very glad I did it, right? because effectively it was, there's a, there was enough in the book, basically. There, were, there was enough I wanted to save. It was a book that, that I'd always been very fond of and had, had stuck in my mind mm-hmm. all those years since the original draft was written. And so I did want to, um, to save Stefan and Peter and so forth mm-hmm. um, and get them out there. It's a very, I mean, it's basically, it's a very weird book. It's an absolute cornucopia of odd things happening and odd monsters and weird ideas and weird places. And there are a number of kind of digressions and excursions um, that Stefan goes on that you just see how bizarre and how screwed up and how, but also how kind of vital this world is. Because, I mean, that that is, a, as said, that's the world where nature is very much kind of fighting back and, attempting to overcome its own sort of demise in the way that the human race isn't mm-hmm. interesting so now you did touch on your future works can you uh go over that again what what your next writing or current right i mean current now because yeah i mean so what have i got the um so i've got a space opera mm-hmm. trilogy coming out from orbit and from pan Macmillan. Mm-hmm. in the US and the UK, respectively. When I say space opera, I mean it's science fiction, but it's not as rigorously hard science as Children of Time mm-hmm. or Doors of Eden, say. Um, the first book of that is called Shards of Earth. That's probably going to be out sometime next year. There's also, uh, from the next one from Head of Zeus is a sequel to Dogs of War called Bearhead, which is going to be, I think, January next year. Mm-hmm. And I've got two novellas as well mm-hmm. because I do I, I am churning them out at the moment. Um, so there's a there's my I've I've finally had a crack at time travel as a plot. So I've got a mm-hmm. a, a somewhat com- com- comedy time travel book called One Day All This Will Be Yours, mm-hmm. um, which is about someone living at the end of time and being very very misanthropic about it. That's another first-person one, as it happens. Mm. And then I've got a sequel to from Tor.com to The Expert Systems Brother, called The Expert Systems Champion, because that did uh, seem to go down very well. Mm-hmm. And that'll be published, I think, I think late next year. I'm, I'm, it's hard. I, I find, I, a, I'm not terribly, I don't get terribly well informed about these things, and B, it's quite mm. hard to, to remember what's coming out when. <laughs> so, yeah, there's quite a lot in the um, in the pipeline. And then as for actually I'm, what I'm writing on at the mo- writing at the moment, um, I've got the third book of the space opera to write still. Mm-hmm. But before then, I am thinking about getting on with the third children of book, which will be provisionally titled Children of Memory, although my re- my record with actually keeping the titles I want is pretty poor. 
So, so this is the output of an inherently lazy person, as you've called yourself. <laughs> what, what? Um, it's, it's the output of someone who knows that left to my own devices, I could be very, very lazy indeed. And I don't let myself be lazy. Uh, so it's a constant battle. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So where can people find you online? Um, I've got a website, which is shadowsoftheapps.com. Uh, which is very infrequently updated, in all honesty. Um, I am easiest to find on Twitter at at aptshadow, A-P-T-S-H-A-D-O-W. Okay. All right. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? I'm going to, actually, I'm going to repeat uh, one thought that I popped on Twitter a little while ago. Um, I mean, I, as a writer, I'm, Certainly in the UK, I'm fairly well known now, and I'm making inroads into the US. Mm -hmm. Because of the whole shutdown, there's been a huge publishing backlog with books that would have been coming out over the last few months not coming out until now, which has meant there's a colossal amount of books suddenly out, including a number of debut novels. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a hell of a poor time to be a first writer getting your first book out. Yeah because of that, the amount of competition flooding the shelves, uh, the, the much reduced amount of attention you'll be getting from your publisher. Mm -hmm. um, if people are, would like to pick up my books, that's grand. Um, I absolutely encourage that for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Do look out for books by new authors that you don't know. If you've got the, um, the, sort of the, the spare disposable income, grab a book by someone and give it a punt. Yeah, yeah. When I saw that news, um, yes, a lot of readers were excited for all the new stuff coming up, but my, I felt a lot of concern for, like you say, the first-time writers or any writers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like, like it's, it's a really, it's a really tough time. Uh, I mean, it's a tough time in a variety of industries for a variety of people, obviously. But the specific writers' lament at the moment is. If you are just coming out, the there's a real possibility of you just vanishing without a trace because there is so much coming out. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I certainly appreciate you uh, speaking with me. No, well, I'm 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 always always delighted. And thank you very much for uh, for your questions. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe and rate it if you can. If you want more fiction and fiction studies ranging from ancient mythology to modern-day sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. On my webpage, you'll also find written interviews and links to my social media accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also discuss art, acting, comic books, gaming, and much more. Thanks again, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.